you shall not commit adultery. Then skipping down to Exodus 22, starting in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Let me just pause for a minute there. I want to make a few comments. I know that some of you may have some questions about the death penalty in ancient Israel. Here it talks about the death penalty if you're for practicing sorcery or, or lying with an animal. And uh, one of the things that's really important to understand about the Old Testament is that in ancient Israel, Israel was a holy spiritual people, and they were a nation, a state. You know, you might say a church-state nexus, which means that the holiness, kind of religious principles of Israel's life was enforced by the civil government. And uh, we do not live under those kind of conditions. We have a church, and then we have a secular state uh, that are distinct institutions. And nowhere in the Bible uh, does it suggest that a nation like the United States of America should enforce the holiness principles of ancient Israel. And the church now, in our day, is scattered in all kinds of different nations around the globe. So you can't identify the church with any state or, or government. And um, there may be wisdom to glean from the, the law of the Old Testament. Uh, we observe that as we go along. But I just wanted to pause and make clear that when we read a passage like this, we're not saying as uh, Christians that we should start executing people for doing sexual acts with their pets or, or, you know, or for practicing witchcraft. So we have to understand the historical context and the moment in the story of the Bible when these texts were given. One other comment I want to make about what I just read. Some of you will know that Jesus makes a famous commentary on the seventh commandment, you, you shall not commit adultery, and uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I decided today to include in our scripture reading that little commentary that our Lord gives. So you can turn to Matthew uh, chapter 5. And I just want to read a few verses from Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And um, these are the verses that I'm really going to be reflecting on as we uh, talk about this topic this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Classic teaching from our Lord, eyes gouged out, hands being cut off, hellfire. You're not going to forget this passage. That's how he teaches. He burns it into your memory. This is important. So uh, important text for us this morning. Let's pray to the Lord as we look at his word. 
Mighty Father in heaven, your word is so wise and speaks about things maybe we don't want to speak about. It asks questions that maybe we don't want to ask. And yet, Lord, we give ourselves every week to your word because we know that you are our Father, you love us. It is your good purposes in our lives that you bring these texts to our minds, and to our community. So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would instruct us, teach us about ourselves, bring us into the light, and most of all, lead us to our Savior, in whom is our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Today we are uh, talking about sexual purity, and lust, and I think that most people are aware that sexual ethics um, is one of the most important topics of our generation. Of course, this past week, probably the biggest news story of the year has been the Brett Kavanaugh hearings about his appointment to the Supreme Court, and as much as a large amount of politics were at play in those hearings, What made the hearings so charged was sexual ethics. And whether Brett Kavanaugh was guilty of sexual abuse or not, what it helped reveal was that we believe there is something broken about our culture's approach to sex. Whether if you're on the left, whether you're on the right, I think we all believe, maybe for different reasons, that there is something broken about how our culture approaches sex. And, you know, one of the great ironies around the topic of sexual abuse is that the, the Me Too movement began in Hollywood. And it is Hollywood that has taught us our sexual ethics for decades. Hollywood has taught us that sex is casual. That people can have sex outside of the love and commitment and security and protection of marriage and everything will be fine and no one will get hurt. But the alarm bells are now starting to sound that something is wrong with our approach to sex. And one of the loudest alarm bells surrounds the rapid explosion of new technologies, the internet, iPhones, or new technologies, no culture, no civilization is ever known in the history of humanity, that have made pornography constantly accessible to everyone And children are being introduced not only to pornography at younger and younger ages, but deviant sexual content they're being introduced to at younger and younger ages. And as a result, sexual addiction is rampant in our culture, destroying marriages and destroying people's lives. I just read an article this week that says one of the biggest ethical questions we're going to be facing over the next few decades is... Uh, the question of sex with robots. Uh, uh, robot brothels are popping up all over the, the world, and, and one is starting in Houston. And again, technology is moving sex away from the loving union of a man and a woman. We are in a crisis, and something is wrong. So the question is, what does this mean for us as Christians, well, ever since uh, the early church, the early, you know, when Christianity was just a marginal sect in the vast Roman Empire, 
one of the most countercultural aspects of the church and the Christian life was in the area of sexual ethics. The ancient world, like our culture, had no sense of what sex was for, why God made sex. And the Christians introduced a beautiful new vision. It was not a vision of shame or abuse or deviance. It was a vision of love and security and mutual service. If there is something that demands spiritual attention in our day, it is sexual purity. We must be a counterculture. We must be a different kind of people. And yet, the brokenness of sexual, you know, sexual brokenness is not something that's just out there in the world. It's not something that's just out there in Hollywood. It's something that's in the church. I mean, what are the biggest news stories about the church over the last two decades has been sexual abuse, not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but also in the Protestant Church. The brokenness is here. It's with us. This is not something for us to point our fingers about a culture out there. It is is a time for us to think about what is God doing in each of our individual lives and hearts. And so as much as there is to say on the topic of sexual ethics, there's more than I could handle in one sermon. This morning, I want to focus on the topic of lust and, and sexual purity for us as individuals. And I want to address the topic by just answering three simple questions for us. What is lust? Why do we do it? And how can we be freed from it? And this is something that's important as Christians. Our approach to cultural transformation is to realize the evil, that, the darkness that's in our own hearts, and to face that darkness first. And to not face the darkness that's out in the world, but to say, first of all, the darkness is here. And so we're going to gently explore that darkness this morning. So three questions. First one is this. What is lust? Now, there are two general ways that cultures have tended to approach sexuality. You might call them the worldly approach and the religious approach. You know, the worldly approach has maybe an over-obsession with sex. You know, in the ancient world, the, the, there would, they had temple prostitutes, so that when you went to worship an idol, sleeping, having sex with a prostitute was a part of your worship. It was, um, there were very few norms to guide what was, was appropriate for sexual ethics. And in our culture, we've experienced what we call sexual liberation, And we've elevated sexuality to the point where we say that the most fundamental thing to our identity is our sexuality. That if you resist your sexual impulse, you are suppressing who you really are. So we've elevated sexuality to the point to say your identity, who you are, is about sex. Sex is the most important thing. So, you know, sex is, it's overinflated how important it is and how obsessed we are with it. On the other hand, there's the religious approach that says that sex is dirty. Uh, sex is always suspect. Or maybe, you know, some theologians have said sex is a necessary evil that we just have to have in order to have babies. And that's the only purpose that it has. And uh, so kids, they grow up in the church always hearing warnings about sex, but they're never given a positive vision for why God created it and for its goodness. The Bible does not fall into either of these ditches. 
The Jewish worldview expressed in the Old Testament celebrates sexuality. Actually, the Old Testament has a whole book of the Bible devoted to erotic love, the Song of Songs. And uh, more romance poetry and literature have, have been written by Christians than any other culture or religion. So the Bible celebrates sex as a gift from God for our good to be used the way that he intended So the question is then, what is the lust that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most important teachings, that he says can destroy our bodies and our souls? They can completely destroy our lives. What is that? Well, two things that lust is. What is lust? Lust is idolatry and a lack of wonder. Two things, okay? First, lust is idolatry. You see this in verse 28 in the Matthew passage where it says, where Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you know, the word that's used there for lustful intent is the Greek word epithemeo, which uh, is a word that means something broader than simply sexual desire. It's used in other places to talk about our longing for God and our relationship to God. And so he's saying if someone takes... What's happening here is someone's taking a longing that could be applied towards God and they're applying it towards sex. So here's how how, uh, Jesus uses that word in Matthew 13. He's talking about all these people who come to hear him and learn about who he is. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed. You might say, you know, lusted, deeply desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and they did not hear it. Speak, uh, this word speaks to the deepest desires of our lives, the thing that we long for more than anything else in the world, the thing that we say, you know, if I had this, my life would be happy, it would be complete, my life would be joyful, I would feel like I had meaning. And what Jesus is saying is we have a tendency to view sex that way. That if I had that, if I had that romantic connection, If I had that deep union, if I experienced that beauty, if I experienced that pleasure, I would have the deepest thing I long for. And, you know, I'll tell you, I I, I struggled with a sexual addiction to pornography as a teenager. And I remember that thought where sexual thoughts began to, to creep into more and more of my day. And that became the most important thing that I looked forward to every single day because I thought if I could have a sexual experience... That would make my life amazing. That would make my life complete. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about. Fundamentally, lust is taking the kind of longing that we should only have toward God and thinking that sex could satisfy that longing. And so lust is idolatry. It's a false God. And I know that maybe many of us here, have it. maybe now or maybe at certain times in our life, have found it's a false God. Sex promises something, and it will not deliver. Sex will dehumanize you. Uh, or, or lust or, or pornography, um, sex apart from the way that God intended it. And um, it will fail to deliver you the, pro- the things that it promises you. And so first, what is lust? Lust is idolatry. The second thing is that lust is a loss of wonder. You might say a loss of delight, a loss of gratitude. I would say even a loss of pleasure. 
Um, Jesus is talking in this passage about adultery. And for Jesus, as a first century Jewish rabbi, that would have meant for him that he was, uh, that the Bible forbids any kind of sexual acts or desires that are directed towards someone that you're not married to. And so that's why he says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual desire should be reserved for one person because the goal of sex for God is union. It's to be joined to a person. All of who you are to be joined to them. And what lust is, is a loss, a sense of delight and wonder and amazement that I could be joined to one person. That should so capture us. We've lost the, the, the amazement at that. And actually, you'll notice the verse that I read from Exodus 22, where it says in verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Basically, this is saying that if you're, you're, when your bodies are joined together, you're, you're not just supposed to be joined with your body. You're supposed to be joined with all of who you are. And so it's like you are doing what a marriage is supposed to do when two people have sex and they're not married. And uh, that all of who I am, my emotional life, my thoughts, my plans, my dreams, my possessions should all be joined together as one. That's what sex is about. You are being united. Now, by the way, let me make one comment about that verse. Some of you might say, well, okay, it's Exodus 22 saying that if two people have sex and they're not married, that they now have to get married. And of course, you know, the Bible is nuanced about that. It's really pushing that sex needs to stay with marriage, but then in the next verse, what does it say? If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And so it is possible that two people have sex and dad says, this fella is bad news. I'm not, I don't want you being married to him. I don't want you spending your life for him. And so just because two people have sex is not a good enough reason to get married. Is this the person you want to spend your life with? And one of the things, by the way, this tells us, young people, if you're thinking about dating, you're thinking about relationships, you need fathers and mothers in your life who know the person that you're thinking about dating. And you should be asking them and having conversations, people who've been married, what should I be looking for? What is your reaction to this person? Maybe that's your mother and your father. If, if your mother and your father aren't the appropriate people for that, you need other mothers and fathers, people in this church who are going to play that role, who know the people that you're interested in you're starting a romantic relationship with. Now, our culture complains, though, that tying sex and marriage together is too restrictive. It's putting limits on our sexual life. Should there be a restriction like that on our sex, on sexuality. Well, G.K. Chesterton gives a great example. He has a chapter in his book, Orthodoxy, called The Ethics of Elfland, where he talks about fairy tales and things that we can learn from fairy tales. And he uses the example of Cinderella when yeah, Cinderella is, has a fairy godmother. You know, she's this poor Cinderella, and she has a fairy godmother. It's pretty great. And this fairy godmother turns a pumpkin into a carriage and turns mice into horses, and then she gets to go to the ball as the most beautiful woman there and dance with the prince. And you would think that, you know, Cinderella would just be blown away. 
And in fact, she's so blown away, she's so grateful for this opportunity that when the fairy godmother comes and says, oh, by the way, you need to be home at midnight, she doesn't even think twice about saying, why can I only be home at midnight? Because she's so amazed with what's been given to her. Can you imagine if Cinderella said, I want to, well, I want to come home at, at 2 a.m.? Fairy godmother would say, like, well, make your own carriage, you know? Make your own <laughs> dress, right? The fairy godmother gave it to you. God has given us the gift of sex. And when we think these restrictions are too limiting, it shows that we're not delighted with sex. We're not amazed at the possibility that I might actually see one woman naked is so beyond my imagination. It's, it's so wonderful. It's so delightful. And the fact that we are obsessed with sex does not show that we delight in sex. It says that we don't see the wonder of it. We don't see the mystery of it. We don't see the sacredness of it. That's what lust is. We've actually lost delight and pleasure. And of course, what we're finding more and more in a culture that's saturated with pornography is that those who you know, experience addiction to pornography, they're finding more and more it is hard to experience. It's harder and harder to experience pleasure. It's harder and harder to be aroused. It's harder and harder to experience that wonder. That is what lust does. Lust enslaves us. Lust dehumanizes us. And it, and it tears away the pleasure and the good things that God intended to give to us. And so that leads us to a next question then. Well, why, why do we do it? If it's so destructive, why would we do it? Well, two things. First, the reason we look to lust is because we desire to experience transcendence. We want transcendence, which means we want to be transported to another world. We long to rise out of the mundane routine of life, my job and my kids and traffic and, you know, paying bills. I want to rise out of that, and I want to behold breathless beauty. I want to feel ecstasy. And we believe that sex will give us that. And one of the things you'll notice in this passage is Jesus says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and actually literally in Greek that says in order to lust. Whenever someone looks at a woman in order to lust, it means it is purposeful looking in order to stir up lust within us. And what all commentators say about this passage, you know, some of you maybe have read this and said, Jesus is saying if you ever have a sexual thought, you have committed adultery. That's not what Jesus says. You have sex pops into your head. And that's not what Jesus is worried about. That happens to everyone. It's when sex pops into your head, what do you do with it? Do you nurture it? Do you water that thought and let it grow? Do you let it grow into a whole world, a whole fantasy world that you can enter into and escape from this world? And uh, is your body starting to be turned on by that thought? It is this growing of a fantasy world that goes with lust in which we hope to experience transcendence because we live in a fallen world, a world of toil, a world of disappointment, and lust in all its various forms gives us the illusion of, escape, of, of transcending the toil and meaninglessness. And it's important to recognize that our fantasy worlds are not just about sexual pleasure. They are worlds where we are in control. 
Everything goes according to plan. There are worlds where there's a pseudo-intimacy, right? We feel loved and uh, we feel wanted. And um, there's no risk of rejection. There's no risk of being turned away. We feel respected. These are the things that really, we really want to, that we don't experience in our fallen, broken, mundane world, and we want to get out of it. And so that's the second thing of why we do it, is not only to experience transcendence, but to escape our pain. There's pain and loss in this world that we want to escape. And Jesus, in this passage, gives these vivid commands and warnings. You see what he says in verse 29? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then skipping down, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Both those verses are inviting us to ask the question, what is causing me to lust? What is causing it? Just suggesting it's not just that I want sex. There are other causes at work there. Let me give you one example. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a college minister in California, and he was talking about college students that he was working with who were dealing with sexual addiction. And he said that you know people often went to pornography when they were angry about something or they felt like their life was out of control. And pornography was offering some escape from, from these things. And he, he even gave one illustration of a friend of his who was a single man really wanted to be married and longed to be married. He went over to his friend's house. It was a couple that he was very close to. He spent the evening with them. They made him this great dinner, and they played games together, and they had these rich conversations. It was just an amazing night, and he just felt so good. But then on the drive home, the thought came to him, I'm going to never have what they have. God is never going to give me that. He went home and looked at pornography. What was the cause I don't believe God has good things for my life. And so I'm going to go find another world that will give me those good things. And so we have to ask the question, what are we looking for? Usually in any kind of addiction, whether sexual or substance, we are not trying to feel a high. We are actually trying to just feel normal. There is a pain What am I not trying to feel when I go to lust or to substances? That's the question we have to ask. And uh, many people who are fighting sexual sin try to say, I gotta stop wanting sex. I gotta stop wanting sex. And it's actually, these are the questions that are work that really need to be faced and really need to be thought through and addressed. Lust is a matter of the heart and it is deeply tied to our confidence in God's love for us, do we believe that God really loves us? And it's when we realize this that we're ready to move on to the last question. So first, just to recap, what is lust? Lust is going to a false god, being enslaved to a false god, idolatry, and it is a loss of wonder. And the reasons we do it is to experience transcendence and to, exp- and to escape the pain and disappointment of living in a fallen world. So, how, so lastly then, how can we be freed? I have a number of things to say on this, so let me, uh, so stay with me. Um, I mentioned earlier in the sermon that as a teenager, I had a, 
uh, addiction to pornography. And even before I was a Christian, um, I, I'd never heard anything about biblical ethics. I never heard anything about Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet I still felt a tremendous amount of shame uh, about my sexual addiction. And um, I think that the experience of shame can be even more acute in the church because we think, I should know better. I'm a Christian. I do know Matthew 5. And so even stronger, you know, the world feels shame about it, and yet even more we feel shame about it in the church. If that is you today, I want you to know you are loved by God. You may think he is sick of you. He is not sick of you. Jesus died for you while you were a sinner. That's when he gave his life for you. I also want you to know that this church loves you. This community loves you. And what Jesus is telling us in these words is we can be set free. I tell you, I am someone, I know what it is to be enslaved. And I know what it's also to experience the freedom. Jesus would not tell us these words if it was not something that's a possibility for us. But there are a few things that have to happen if you are going to experience that freedom. And so I want to share with you first a few practical solutions that are important, but ultimately what we might call the gospel solution. Okay? So first, what are some practical solutions? The first is you must be honest. And this is not as easy as it sounds. Um, I had a pastor friend who told me several years ago he had talked with some men in his church he was just asking them about his life, their lives, and in all those conversations, he would ask them about their use of pornography. And they would say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I've stumbled a few times this year with regard to pornography. And they'd say, oh, well, have you looked at pornography this month? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I've looked at pornography this month. Have you looked at pornography this week? Yes, yeah, I've looked at Pornography this week, even, actually. Have you looked at pornography more than once this week? Yeah, I've looked at pornography more than once this week. All of a sudden, I stumbled a few times, turned into hundreds of experiences with pornography. It is not easy to be honest. We don't want to face this about ourselves. It is hard. And, uh, the, but the first practical step toward healing and sexual sin is honesty to look at it. To tell God, to tell a brother or sister in Christ, because when you say it, it means that you are desiring something different for your life. I want something different. It's to be unsettled. Harry Schomburg, who's written about sexual addiction, puts it this way. You must face the truth that the shining, untarnished image you offer to others is a heinous attempt to deny your sin and your need of God's mercy and grace. We will not experience either God's grace in our lives or God's change in our lives if we do not face the truth. And when you are honest, it will cause you then to ask for help. And that's the second practical solution we have. It's not simply to be honest, but you must pursue community. 
You know, John Stott, who's a commentator on the, on, on the Sermon on the Mount, says, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, is not something you can do by yourself. This, these are commands given to a community. You need to be in dialogue about these commands. You need to have other people who are pursuing these commands and who know that you're pursuing these commands and you're doing it with them. So if pornography is a struggle for you, does anyone know about it? And confession looks like telling God, telling other people. It looks like grieving the loss of the effect this has had in our life, feeling sorrow for that. Um, and if you have been trapped in a sin for many years, you may have become desensitized to it. You need brothers and sisters to mirror back to you the reality of God's world and who he is. And also, you know, some of us have grown up in families where uh, healthy relationships or a biblical understanding of sexuality has not been modeled for us. So we need to see what God intends for sexual relationships in healthy marriages. That only happens in community. You need a home group. You need discipleship groups. You need a women's Bible study, whatever it is, where you say, I have a community in my life. And also, lust is not just tied to our sexual relationships. It's tied to all of our relationships. You know, when you go to pornography and it's like a pseudo-intimacy, right? There's no risk. No one really knows me. I can't be rejected. I can't be, fa- I can't be denied there. One of the best ways to treat that is to have actual intimacy and not just sexual intimacy. Like people who really know you, know what's happening in your life and to, and to realize you can be loved and you can be accepted and, and that God accepts you that way. And so there, one of the best remedies to know that God loves you and one of the best re- remedies for, for pornography is other people in our lives, non-sexual relationships. A third practical solution. You must remove stumbling blocks. If there are things that are leading you to sin, you need to run from them. You need to get them out of your life. You know, that's one of the things Jesus says in this passage, drastic measures. Gouge your eye out, cut your hand off. And, you know, why does he talk about the eye? The eye is a portal into the body. He's saying you have to be vigilant about what's coming through your eyes into your body. And a Christian is not going to say, I can handle it. No, you can't. No, I can't handle it. You know, and this is not just in areas of pornography. Maybe some of you are in, a, in your workplace. Maybe you're in an inappropriate relationship. And you're sensing a temptation. You say, you know, I can stay friends with this person and kind of flirt a little bit. You can't handle it. You run. That's the response. Or drastic measures. I need to put some accountability on my computer. If you don't know what Covenant Eyes is, Covenant Eyes, you say, I have someone who, if I look at anything inappropriate on my computer, they get a, me- they get a message that says that I did that. They, they're watching what's happening in my life. There are practical steps towards finding redemption from sexual sin. Jesus points us towards those. But if the reasons for lust are deeper than mere pleasure, as we said that, you know, we lust because we long to escape pain, then we need a solution deeper than simple practical solutions to avoid lust. We need something that changes us on a deep level. And that's the gospel solution. So much of lust comes from shame. I'm dirty, 
I have dirty desires. My life feels out of control. God is probably sick of me. And how could I ever want, how could he ever want good things for my life? Simply removing stumbling blocks does not speak to this shame. And you know, for some of us, we just feel like our bodies just go to sexual sin. I, I hate it, and yet my body just goes to it. And you, you sympathize with the gouging out of the eye and the cutting off of the hand. You almost feel you want to do that. What is the answer to the shame? The gospel says that Jesus' body was literally torn for us. Our sin was killed, was put to death in his body. He takes away our guilt. He bore our shame on the cross to wash us. And he's breathed his spirit into us. If you are in Christ, you have the spirit of Christ in you. You have a power at work in your heart and in your mind and in your body. Your body is filled with his spirit. Only the love of God in Christ speaks to the deeper question of shame. And so how are we to be set free from lust? It's a com- this combination. You need the love of God in Christ. You need the inner transformation of spirit. You need the community of the church. You need all of these things working. And so today, this morning, I want to invite you to the gift of repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Christ. I want to invite you to honesty I want to invite you to community. But most of all, I want to invite you to Christ, the friend of sinners, the friend of the sexually broken. Let's pray together. Our Lord, your word is light. It exposes what is in the darkness. But Lord, your light is not a harsh light, not a light to condemn. It is a light that invites us into your presence. It's a light that is warm and washes. Uh, Lord, uh, these topics speak deeply to our lives and our families. Lord, you know that these words I speak are are imperfect to speak to the many lives present here. So I pray for your spirit to speak to each one of our hearts. Lead us to Christ. Lead us to the cross. And uh, make us a church uh, in the midst of a culture where inside and out of the church People have been damaged by sexual sin. Would this be a place of healing? Would the presence and love of Christ be here to wash us and give us that new, beautiful vision? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.